watching the kids leave. I, just, I love kids. I, I love the way they look at the world, which is entirely different than the rest of us have the ability to. Like, I don't know what it is, but something fell out of our brains when we turned like 10 or 15, I don't know, somewhere in there, because they just see the world differently. I love the way their eyes are open to things. I love the things they say. Sometimes they'll just describe something normal and everyday in the weirdest, most unusual way. I think I said this before, but one time we were, uh, it was around Christmas, and we were reading from the Bible and the, the Christmas story, and, you know, I asked the boys if they knew what a manger was, and James just said, yeah, it's a cow cereal bowl. <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. I, I mean, it's not wrong, you know, in a sense. So, yeah, that was great, but I'd never heard it put that way before. And, you know, so I just love so much about kids. But there's one big downside to kids is that they can be mean, incredibly, incredibly mean. And um, a lot of kids will take just about any opportunity they can get to make fun of another kid uh, at school, you know, their brothers, their sisters, pick on them. Um, and, you know, you can get into the psychology of it. I think part of it is that in those young years, you're just trying to find your place in the world. You're trying to find your hierarchy and where you fit in life with friends and whatnot. And you kind of learn that, like, if I can put a target on someone else, then the target's not on me. If I can make fun of someone else, then nobody's making fun of me. And, and I remember growing up and getting made fun of on the bus, getting made fun of uh, at recess, standing in the lunch line, you name it, somebody probably picked on me somewhere along the way. And I don't think that's incredibly unique to me. I think a lot of us probably had that sort of experience at some point in our lives. Maybe you were the person who was just really mean from the get-go, and you never got made fun of because you were too busy making fun of everybody else. Uh, I don't know, but all of us can kind of relate to that. And, and whether they were making fun of your clothes, your hair, uh, the way you talked, um, maybe something dumb you said in class, and a, a silly question you asked. Maybe there's some physical feature about you that people latched onto, oh, your ears or your nose or whatever it could be. Um, it, when people make fun of something over and over again to you, it was weird as a kid, especially how those words echoed for the rest of the day. And sometimes, if it, again, if it was one of those things like that people made fun of you about the same thing over and over again, it didn't just echo for the day. It echoed for months and years as you grew up. Um, and if you don't find something to grind your, grind, ground your identity in, something that's like a firm foundation to like find confidence in or find security in, what you're going to ultimately end up doing, that stuff's going to follow you into adulthood or at least adolescence, and you're going to start trying to change the things that people make fun of. Uh, in fifth grade, I was the shortest boy in my class. I was the chubbiest boy in my class. And then I became this height by eighth grade. So sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Every time I came back from summer break, I was the head taller, head taller. And I was this height in eighth grade. I weighed about 70 pounds less. And I was just a skeleton with skin on it, you know? So I went being called, like, shorty to skeletor in, like, a few years. And it was really weird, but I started getting really self-conscious about it because, you know, as I get into high school, you know, people start making fun of you for being weak, for being scrawny, for being so little. And, and for whatever reason, there's also guys that when they go through puberty, God also doesn't, he doesn't just give them height, he gives them muscles, which is just unfair, for the people who just got height. 
because all I had was bones and height, and, you know, I'm walking around not knowing where, where my body ends because it all happened so fast, and, and, you know, girls at that point in time, they didn't look to the gangly guy. They looked to those guys who got height and muscle, and so after being made fun of for a time, I decided my freshman year that I was going to start going to the gym to try to, you know, do something, put some weight on, something, and over the course of high school, because I got sick of being made fun of, I tried to change myself, and I did put on 30 pounds over the course of high school. Now, the 40 pounds since then is not muscle, but it's still something, you know, it's, it's better than going back the other way, I guess. And it's interesting, though, how for a lot of us, we still have things like that that we hang on to. We still have that voice in our head that echoes around, and it's changed, okay? For most of you, maybe it is still the thing that people made fun of you about. Maybe you're, you know, it's, you're here 20, 30 years past high school, and you're still worried about your ears. Um, for me, it, you know, it's, it's changed over time, but I still have those voices in my head about, you know, oh, no, my hair's gone. What am I going to do? The dumb thing is, my ears kind of stick out already. I could kind of hide that when I had hair, and God's like, no, I'm going to make you bald and let everybody still notice your ears. Ah, uh, great. Thanks a lot. So you hear those voices in your head, but the voices change sometimes as you get older. It becomes, um, you know, you start worrying about, like, okay, you're not good enough. You're a bad parent. You're a bad Mom, you're a bad dad. You're the worst employee. You're so dumb. You're never going to get ahead at work. You know what? Everyone else here thinks that you're a waste of space, and they don't even know why you're on the team. I mean, there's all of these voices that start echoing through our head. And what's interesting is, I, I read a study a while back that, um, that showed, um, they went through and studied very successful people, like people who had worked their way from nothing to like the top tier of success in their company, in their field, whatever. And they found that one of the most overwhelming thoughts that all of those people had that they never talked about was they all felt like imposters. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them felt like an imposter. They felt like it wasn't their skill that got them there. It wasn't their smarts, their intelligence, their um, discernment, their work savvy, whatever it is. They felt like they had kind of lucked their way into a position of prominence and that everybody else thought that they didn't deserve to be there. They felt like they were just kind of faking their way through it, and if they told anybody, exact, if anybody actually found out who they really were, how untalented they really were, no, they would lose it all. And they didn't just study how the people thought or viewed themselves, they also looked at their accomplishments and found that the people that felt that way deserved to be there. They were incredibly talented. They had worked their way. I mean, they really did earn what they got. They weren't imposters at all, but yet so many of them felt like imposters. There was that voice in their head accusing them of all of these things. You don't deserve to be here. You're just the worst. And so these voices that have echoed through our childhood, echoed through our adolescence, follow us into adulthood. They might change what they say, but they're still there. And for many of us, it's not just something that happens at work. It's not just something that happens at home when you're you know, deciding if you're a good parent or not. It's not just something that rattles around when you look at your husband or your wife and you're like, man, am I any good at this or not? And the voice says, no, you're not. Um, those voices also say a lot to you pertaining your spiritual life. Um, those voices remind you of every wrong thing you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed, every time you don't measure up to the standard that we claim to uphold here as Christians, and we become plagued sometimes with guilt and shame over the things that we have done, or sometimes the things that we are in the midst of doing. 
And, you know, sometimes you become a Christian and you try to make a break from your past and what you find is you feel like an imposter because you're, you're trying to walk with the power of the Holy Spirit to, to change who you were. You're trying to make that clean break from the past and yet here you are in church really working by God's grace to be better and you're making actual progress and you sit there and think, I don't belong here. If these people knew who I used to be, if these people had any idea of the sins I have committed, if they knew any idea what was in my past or maybe even what happened this last week, they would like cartoon style grab me by the collar and by the belt and just heave me out the front door. And it's amazing how this vo- these voices continue. So last week we started this series called When the Devil Knocks. And we're talking about the ways that Satan himself works in our lives and and we talked last week that Satan is a, is a real being. At least the authors who wrote all of the books that we've compiled into our Bible, they all spoke as if the devil, Satan, was a real being that actually had intent to do harm to you and to me. And ultimately his goal is not just to make you miserable, not to make your life hard, but ultimately his goal is to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy your faith. You see, the, the story goes in Scripture that Satan was an angel who betrayed God, who thought God was hogging all the glory and fun for himself, and he wanted some of that glory. But he was, he was a created being. He is not on the same level as God, and so he was punished, and he was tossed out of heaven. And a place called hell was prepared especially for Satan and any of the angels that followed him on this mission of betraying God. And since Satan is already lost, since he cannot beat God, he's almost like the kid who said, if I can't have the toy, you're not going to have it either, and then breaks the toy. He wants to ensure that the thing God loves is destroyed as well, and that's us. He wants every single one of us to go to hell. That's his goal. He wants to take us with him. He wants to destroy your faith if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, he wants to keep you from having faith. And if you're not a Christian and you think, whoa, I picked a really weird day to come to church, the spooky afterlife stuff, we're not crazy. But this gives you a peek into some of what we believe about the unseen world that we believe exists around us. And so last week we talked about how Satan works in our lives to destroy our faith, try to get us on the road to hell. He works as a deceiver. He spreads lies and half-truths and all kinds of stuff into our lives to get us off the path of Jesus onto the road to hell. Now today I want to talk about another role that he works in to try to destroy our faith, and that is the role of the accuser. Role of the accuser. Um, Again, many of the authors who wrote these ancient pieces of literature that we've kind of bound together calling the Bible, because sometimes we think the Bible is a book, It is not a book. It is a miniature library of dozens of pieces of literature, some of it poetry, some of it history, some of it kind of weird, prophetic, symbolic language that we have a hard time understanding. But it was written by a lot of different people over thousands of years to tell the amazing story of how God is working to save us through Christ. And all of those people, not all of them, excuse me, but a lot of those writers, they wrote about how Satan works as the accuser. And the way this works, and it's, it's unusual, we don't talk about this a whole lot, is that it appears as if Satan goes before God in heaven, and he draws God's attention, or he brings to mind one of us, 
a person, a human, and, and his job is to stand before God, almost imagine it like a courtroom scene. In fact, a lot of the, the prophets and the, the little stories we have of Satan as the accuser, it's set up like a courtroom scene. And so, you know, God's the judge, we're the ones on trial, and Satan is the lawyer trying to get us condemned, trying to prove our guilt, trying to say, they don't deserve heaven, they're the worst, here's all the sins they've ever committed, and he reminds us, he accuses us of this whole laundry list of things that honestly we have actually done. So I want to take us into one of those courtroom scenes today, where Satan accuses a human before God, and we're going to go to a book, I don't know if I've ever, pre- I've, I've preached from it at least once, but not a lot, it's the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament minor prophet of Zechariah. It's not a long book. Feel free to use the table of contents in your Bible to find it. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. The words will be on the screen. But if you want to follow along in one of the hardback black Bibles, it'll be on page 794. 794. And we're going to start in Zechariah chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. And again, think of Satan as the, the lawyer trying to get us condemned. He's trying to get us sent to hell. He's trying to make sure God is fully aware of every single sin that we've ever committed. He's accusing us. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then he showed me Joshua. So this is Zechariah having kind of a vision. Then he showed me Zechariah, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord. And this term is used with the Lord. It's interchangeable here in the story. So there's the judge. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan as the accuser. Now we learn a couple of verses later that Joshua, um, since he's the high priest, what, he, what Satan accuses him of is having dirty clothes. And some of us in this room are thinking, if that's all it takes to get to hell, then I got no hope. Like, having three kids and all of them having colds in the winter, man, it's like, I got snot everywhere. It's like, just, where's the the trap door? I might as well just give up and go now. Like, there's no point if dirty clothes is what it takes. Well, there's a little more to the story. Again, these stories often are figurative, and they're trying to teach a point through descriptive language, like building a courtroom scene. Um, In the Old Testament uh, sacrificial Jewish system, the high priest was the person who stood between God and humans, the rest of the people, as kind of an intermediary. And he was the one that stood between God and the people to help the people make atonement and make sacrifices for their sin. And in order for the high priest to qualify to stand in God's presence, he had to be ultimately clean as much as possible. And that just that means spiritually clean, spiritually clean, ceremonially clean, physically clean. There were all these steps he had to go through. He was supposed to have pristine clothes on. He was supposed to have washed himself in a very specific way to ensure ritual cleanliness. He was supposed to have uh, offered sacrifices for himself so that he was righteous before God and free of sin, before he stood up to offer the sacrifices of the people. There was a lot of things that he had to do to go before God and serve in his role as high priest and to have filthy garments. In fact, the Hebrew word filthy, is what we're going to learn in a minute, is actually a word that means covered in poop. And again, as a parent, I've had that. You know, that's a thing that also happened before. Um, But that's like, okay, so you have a high priest who's supposed to be wearing pristine robes, and somehow he fell down, apparently behind a horse, and is covered in excrement. 
Okay? It's the, the point being that he is completely unqualified to do what he's called to do. He is completely unfit to serve as a mediary, between, intermediary between God and man. He's unfit. He's not clean. He's not righteous. He's not sinless. He's not forgiven to do this job. And Satan is reminding God, see this guy? You called him for something special. He ain't worthy of it. You called him to something special. Why would you pick him? Look how dirty and disgusting he truly is. Joshua is unworthy, and Satan stands ready to condemn him. Satan stands ready before God to prove that Joshua is unfit and how sinful he is. And that is how Satan works, oftentimes, as the accuser. He highlights your sin. He puts a spotlight on your absolute worst and darkest moments. Because he wants to keep those in your focus. He wants to keep you focused on the worst things you've ever done, the worst things you've ever said, the worst things you've ever thought, so that he can blind you and cripple you under the weight of shame and guilt. And he wants to make sure that you get lost in all the accusations, all the doubts. Because, you know, when you're buried under all that guilt and all that shame, you feel like you've got no future, especially a spiritual one. Because he's, because, and that's kind of what he wants you to say. He wants to say, because of your past, you've got no future. Because of what you've done, there's no way to go. Yeah, you can come to church and fake it. You can come to church and put on a smile. You can come to church and hope for the best. But we know what you've done. God knows what you've done. Even some of the people here know what you've done. And I've, I've said before, in um, my early years of being a Christian, I didn't, I didn't live like much of a Christian. You know, there's supposed to be a, a break between the old self and you're supposed to have a new, different life where you actually follow Jesus with your, with your life, you know. And I, I, uh, I had a little bit of a delay between when I gave my life to Christ and when I started actually following Jesus. And I was that person in high school who if I could put a target on somebody to keep the target off of me, I would. And man, I would pick people, and I don't know how else to say this. I'll, I'll say it in the mean way. I picked people who were easy targets, People who I knew were going to be insecure about something, and I could just rip on them. My friends would laugh, ha, ha, ha. Everybody thinks I'm great, and they're not making, making fun of me. And you know, that's one of the many things I did uh, did in high school during that season, that, and then a little bit into college as I, uh, my faith kind of be- hopefully became something that was real to me and meaningful to me. Um, I treated girls in shameful ways. There's just, I could give you the laundry list of what I did and how um, I failed to change and live that new life Christ had for me. Um, so much so that years later, after I had uh, started following Jesus, the Holy Spirit did some amazing stuff in my life, changed my character. I went to Bible college, became a minister, started working here. I went back home to do the wedding, to perform the wedding for one of my best friends from high school. And you know how before the wedding, there's usually like the room with the bride and the bridesmaids, and then there's the room with the groom and the groomsmen? I was in there with the groom and the groomsmen, and, and it was pretty much a little mini reunion of our high school friend group, right? And we were just kind of sitting there, and my friend looks at me, the one who was getting married, and he said, you know, if you told me that one of our friends from high school was going to be a minister, and he looks around the room at everybody else, he said, I think you would have been the last one I would have guessed. <laughs> Thank you? You know, like, okay. And, and that type of comment echoes in my head. What are you doing here? You don't deserve to be on that stage. How dare you tr- get up there and try to teach God's word and tell people how to live their lives after, after the way you've lived yours. 
And then there's even that, that voice that sometimes, you know, it, it says, don't, don't even tell people what you've done. Because don't even let people even think that you might be a sinner. Because the second people get wind that you have faults and you have failings, they're going to realize that you don't deserve to be there either. And then you're not going to have a job and you're not going to have a paycheck. And, and then who knows what's going to happen. Your whole life's going to crumble around you. And, and that voice echoes in my Head And many of you, again, you have a voice that probably doesn't say the same things that mine does, but you hear the voice sometimes as well. And it might say, didn't you cheat? Didn't you commit adultery? Now you want to come here? People know what you did. You think you're just going to be okay and try to live normal and come to church? Weren't you, weren't you a drunk? Weren't you, weren't you a mumbling and stumbling fool who couldn't put down the bottle and now you think... After, after what you did, you think you're just going to step back into being a um, husband or a, a, or a wife or a, a mom or a dad? You're just going to walk back into that and act like nothing is going to uh, hang over you that way? Didn't you file for bankruptcy? You couldn't handle your own business and now your family had to come in and you, had, and you were a burden to them because they had to carry the weight that you couldn't carry? Aren't your kids wild and far away from Christ? So you failed. You came to church, and you raised them in church, and now you, fa- you failed in that mission of a parent. What an embarrassment. Or maybe the voice says, what nerve you have to come to church after what you did last week. You sat at home, you watched porn all week, and then you come to church and sing with that same mouth like, you're, like, like you love Jesus. Who's, who are you fooling? Nobody. And you hear I don't know what your voice says, but I know that there are a lot of internal accusations that ring in our ears every single day, especially concerning our faith. And, and I'll tell you the worst part about these accusations. A lot of them are true. You did do the things. You have had those worst moments. You have cheated. You have uh, been, been an addict. You have been a bad parent at times. Some of the, that's the worst part about those accusations is that they're oftentimes true. It doesn't ever say in the story that we're looking at, it never says that Joshua wasn't dirty. In fact, you find out he was dirty. He was covered in exactly what it says he was covered in. That's, the, that's where Satan's power of accusation lies in the fact that we have been bad, that we have done evil things. And if he can just keep reminding you over and over and over again of what you have done, you will think and you will feel that there is no future for you here, that there is no future for you with God, there is no future for you in his kingdom, there is no future for you at church. Your life will never make a difference because of the weight of what you've done. And as painful as that is, God can always take a painful moment, a painful story, a painful life, and a painful history and turn things around. So let's go back to the vision of Zechariah. As the devil prepares to accuse Joshua of his filthy robes. Now, notice, the devil hadn't said a thing yet. He's just there, ready to accuse. And we go to verse 2. And the Lord said to him, Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Meaning, yeah, Joshua is a sinful human like everybody else, and he deserves to go to hell. But I have rescued him out of that. Yeah, he was determined for the flames, but I have rescued him out of that. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. 
And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, Joshua, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, pure clothes, better clothes, clean clothes, spotless clothes. He was guilty. He was dirty. But it was God who made him clean. His entire situation here was not about, okay, Joshua, you clean yourself up and then we'll talk again. That's never the approach that we see God having toward us. It's always, man, you're a mess. You're lucky I'm here. And God steps in and God makes him clean out of grace, out of mercy. And we find out in just a few verses that this little vision that Zechariah is having is actually a prophecy of the future, of how God would not just treat Joshua the high priest, but how God would treat all people through Christ. Jump down to verse 8. God says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. We're starting about halfway through verse 8. But the branch is, is a common Old Testament phrase. It's a common term prophesying the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of all people. It says, for behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua. The idea of a stone means he's saying, I'm going to build something new. Okay, And here's the first stone, that cornerstone of a building. We're going to start with something new. The stone that I have set before Joshua. And then it gets really weird. He says, on a single stone with seven eyes. See, I told you, prophecy can get a little goofy. Seven in, in, the, in the Bible, when it comes to various numbers, is a term of completeness and wholeness or, or fullness in a sense. And so basically it's saying the stone that is to come can see all things, can know all things. The stone is Jesus. On this single stone I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Not a person, but everybody in a single day. Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, God will forgive the sins. He will take off our dirty old clothes and give us something bright and new. And this is saying that Joshua was, was cleaned and forgiven, not because he deserved it again, but because God was loving and good and gracious. And that one day, God was going to treat us all the same way. He was going to forgive us, not because we deserved it, because as we said, the accusations are true. We are, we are just the worst. I mean, human beings, we invent bad things all the time. It is impressive the things that some of you who love your kids, it is impressively bad some of the things that you have said to them. I mean, if I were an evil person, and I didn't care about your kids one way or the other, if I heard some of the awful things that we have said to our kids, I'd be like, man, I wouldn't have thought anybody would be that mean, but woo, you just like set the record. I've said things to my kids, and afterward I'm like, why? Why did those words come out of my mouth? What possible good could that have done to shaping their future? We are bad people, but the hope is that God will forgive us, that God will make us clean, not because we deserve it, not because we actually took whatever spiritual scrub brush and did the work to make ourselves clean, but only through Jesus will he make us clean. And then the fulfillment of this prophecy comes when Jesus dies on a cross. In one day, Jesus takes the sin of the entire world on himself, pays the punishment for it, so that you and I are no longer standing before God with this giant list of all the things we've done wrong, all the reasons why we've been deserving of punishment. The list that Satan brings before him to accuse us of all the things. God wipes it away. Since we went to one weird passage, let's go to another book that can be awful weird. Revelation chapter 12, we'll start in verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. 
that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. They have been conquered, they have conquered him, excuse me, by the blood of the Lamb. It was Jesus' blood poured out for you and me that washes this clean. All of the punishment that you and I deserved, that we would get if we were found guilty in God's grand court, Jesus stood between us and God like a high priest, and he took all of that. So that, yes, our list of accusations still stands. We are still the people who have done that. But the punishment is no longer deserved because Jesus took it on our behalf. Um, ben Souders used to tell me, he heard a way, somebody said it to their, was explaining the gospel to a kid, and they said, Jesus got in trouble so we wouldn't have to. Jesus got the time out, or Jesus got the spanking so we wouldn't have to. And that's, that's pretty much the story of the gospel, that you and I are no longer guilty, are no longer held liable for our wrongs because Jesus stood between us and God and poured out his blood for the things we have done. In 1 John chapter 2, this is one of Jesus' right-hand men wrote this. He says, Now, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father. So there's somebody else in the courtroom, it says. It's not just us, the judge, and the accuser, but that we also get a lawyer. We get an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, that Jesus is standing there to plead our case to God, to explain why we don't need to suffer, why we don't need to spend eternity in hell. For Jesus, it says, he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a word that means he is an offering that turns away wrath. An offering that turns away wrath, meaning that Jesus was our offering. He sacrificed himself so that we would not have to be under the wrath of God for our sin. He took the wrath for us. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so Jesus stands in the courtroom next to us, and as Satan accuses, Jesus pleads our case. And what that means is, you know, when you hear the, word, the story over and over again of all the things you've done wrong over and over again, you start to identify with your sin. You start to feel like your nickname is cheater. Your nickname is sinner. Your nickname is lust addict, whatever. You start to wear the name of your sin because that's all you hear in your head, that you are the worst of the worst. But whereas Satan names you with your sin, God names you with his son. And Jesus is innocent, he is perfect, he is righteous, he is clean, he is holy. And even though it is not fair, you in Christ get to wear all of those names. Forgiven, saved, righteous, pure, clean, holy. Not because you deserve it, but because he is so incredibly good. Your identity is changed the moment you give your life to Christ. Your character, your defining characteristic of your life is not your sin. It's not your failures, it's not your guilt, it's not how terrible you used to be. What defines you now is Christ and the forgiveness he gives you. So that means as Christians, we need to stop listening to that accuser. 
And for a lot of us, that voice has been rattling around in your ears for a long, long time. And it's going to be hard to not listen to it anymore. But it does you no good. It is, it is proclaiming to you a half-truth. Yes, you've done those things. But even greater than, than the depth of your sin is the height of the salvation of God. There's no place that you can go to that his salvation cannot reach. There's no thing you have said, thought, or done that cannot be washed away by the blood of Jesus. And you stand before God as forgiven and clean. And so instead of listening to what Satan says about us, we need to listen to what God says about us in Christ. Galatians chapter 4 says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, what's that word right there? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That means your identity before God is not sinner, but son or daughter of God. Not worthless, not lost, not trash, not filth on the robes. You're, you're not dirty and sinful, despicable, but you are redeemed and adopted into God's family as a son or a daughter. You don't get to be a son or daughter of God if your identity is disgusting sinner. But Jesus wipes that away so that you can be forgiven. Your identity is not based on what you've done. It is based on what Jesus has done for you. And I'm going to tell you, that fighting that battle in your head, it's a lifelong battle. Because we're not going to be perfect. I'm going to sin. You are going to sin. I'm going to do things a minister should never do. You are going to do things a son or God of, or son or daughter of God should not do. And you're going to have that moment, and you're going to hear the voice saying, I don't even belong here. What point is it? Why should I even come to church? I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner. There's no way God would love me. That voice does not define your future. What God says about you defines your future. And he sent his son to save you, to redeem you and wipe you clean. And so Christianity is about accepting that unbelievable, ridiculously amazing grace of Jesus' salvation. And then by his power, doing our best. And hopefully every day making progress so that we put the past more and more behind us. And when the past shows up again, we don't let Satan drive us into guilt and shame where we want to hide from God because he'll never accept me for what I've done. But because we keep believing what he said, that we are a son or a daughter, we say, God, I can't believe I sinned. That's not who you've, who you've saved me to be. Help me to walk more like Jesus. So that when you sin, you don't run and hide. You come back to God. You admit it. You repent of it. And you proceed, hopefully, more closely in the footsteps of Jesus. Satan can only remind you of what you've done. He cannot tell you about your future. Do not let him. Just because of what you've done, because of the sins you've committed, that does not mean that your future is set in stone. The only one who can determine your future is Christ. Through Jesus, God wants to forgive you, cleanse you, and lead you towards something that is so, so, so much better. Don't listen to the accuser. Listen to the one who adopted you into his family. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy you've shown us in Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we can have in him. That though none of us deserved it, you forgave us. And even now, I can guess there's probably someone in here who says, yeah, Jesus died for sinners, but not, not for you, not for me. I'm the worst. Jesus surely didn't die for me. Banish that voice from our heads, God. 
Let us know that you have sent your son for each and every one of us. That Jesus didn't die for us when we come into church with a smile, look, thinking that we, you know, we looked mostly good. No, you sent Jesus because we were <laughs> rotten at times, because we were sinners, because of the worst days we've had, the worst thoughts we've had, the worst things we've done and said. And his grace can reach into every single one of us, into the darkness that lives in our hearts, and he can forgive us and begin to wash out that darkness so that we might be made, remade, recreated in the image of Jesus. So let us be filled with hope because we're not going to listen to the accuser anymore. But we're not going to listen to the lies that Satan wants to feed us. We're not going to be identified by our sins and our worst days and our mistakes. We're going to be identified, defined by what Jesus has done for us. And we're going to stand in awe, not of how bad we are, but of how good you are. So draw our eyes heavenward so that we might be grateful for the salvation we have, that rather than being overcome with sin and shame and guilt, we might be overcome with awe and wonder at how a God so amazing could love someone like us. And thank you again that Jesus takes the punishment fully and fully for us so that we don't have to be scared of what our future holds, but we can have hope in our future because of him. It truly is amazing grace, and I pray that we do not forget it as we walk this road with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.